Welcome to the podcast, How to Be Well and Strong. I'm your host, Jacqueline Genova, and I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with some of the leading figures in the fields of wellness, integrative medicine, and mental health, as we discover what it truly means to be well and strong in both body and mind. Get ready to be empowered, inspired, and motivated about being an advocate for your own health. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Dr. Dave Rabin, a board-certified psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and inventor who studies resilience and the impact of chronic stress in our day-to-day lives at the Apollo Clinic. He specializes in treatment-resistant mental illnesses, including depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, psychosomatic disorders, personality disorders, chronic pain disorders, insomnia, and substance use disorders using minimal and non-invasive treatment strategies. Dave has also developed a wearable technology that makes stress relief easier for patients with PTSD and other treatment-resistant ailments. In today's episode, we discuss all things stress, something we all experience at some point in our lives. Dave shares why not all stress is created equal, highlighting the difference between distress and eustress, what stress does to us physically, and some tools we can use to help manage anxiety. Please share this episode with anyone who you think would benefit from the tools Dr. Rabin shares with us. Let's get into our conversation. Well, first of all, Dr. Dave, welcome to the show. I've been a longtime fan of your work ever since I first heard about the Apollo wearable. So I'm really excited to speak with you and really just dive into the world of stress and its impact on our nervous systems, which I know is a topic that you speak very frequently on. Yeah, sounds good. I'm so glad you're enjoying the wearable. Yeah, I I need to be more consistent with my usage. My understanding is that the more consistent you are, the better effects it has, but I'm getting there. Have you scheduled it yet? No. That's uh, the best feature. And we can give you access to Smart Vibes, which is the AI that turns on automatically throughout the day and night. Interesting. Um, That's the most exciting new feature. So we'll definitely make sure to give you access to that after this. Awesome. I'm very excited. Yeah, I think I have an update available. At least I checked on the app this morning. But um, you have quite an interesting background, and I'd love if you could share a bit more about your story and how you essentially found yourself in this space. Sure. And thank you so much for having me. When I was a kid, I used to have very vivid dreams, and I was always interested in how real they felt. And sometimes I would find myself, you know, recalling things about my dreams that I thought had happened in real life to other people like hanging out with my brothers and thinking that they were had some experience with me that I realized they weren't there for because I dreamt it. And that was really interesting. And so I asked my parents, I was probably like somewhere between four and seven years old. And I, I started to ask my parents, what's with what's these dreams? What's going on when we sleep, basically? And they just told me that dreams aren't real. And like many parents do to make sure that we don't believe in our nightmares and things. And that always never really sat with me completely because I kept having them occasionally. And when you have a dream like that, it makes you question what's going on. And so I started to develop this early interest in the meaning of reality and consciousness and the way we use these words to describe like what we see as, you know, real versus whatever else is out there, which could be equally or more real, you know, unless we investigate it. So that became really interesting to me. And then I realized as I was starting to get out of high school that that was actually a very challenging field to study at the time. And there was there were not a lot of opportunities to study consciousness in that kind of way where you actually could make a decent living. 
And so I had a lot of advice to go to medical school. And so I started that path. And while in medical school, I was, I was always interested in research. And, and so I was doing research on chronic stress and resilience and how we think about the way that stress impacts the body, because stress seems to be one of the major things that decreases our lifespan and our health span and mm-hmm. makes us feel unwell. And it can, seems to contribute to a lot of illness. At the same time, stress can also help us grow and become better, stronger human beings, right? So it has these. Absolutely, it has this these two layers that are very interesting that are, I think, not fully taught about. And so I was studying that for a long time on the cellular level and understanding how cells deal with stress, which is actually very similar to the way that we deal with stress and impacts because we're made of cells. All the ways that stress impacts our bodies, and then. In 2012, I I learned about, I was treating veterans with PTSD and starting to see the growing crisis of mental health and realizing that many of our treatments that were not as, were not that effective to actually get people with mental health conditions better long-term where they weren't medication dependent for life. And many of our patients were just not getting better more than 50% in many cases. And one of my friends introduced me to the literature that was in the psychedelic-assisted therapy space, and I started to dive into that and realize that that this was some of the best research I'd ever seen on psychedelic therapies actually treating or starting to treat mental health conditions by getting to the root source of the problem. And when I saw that evidence and how psychedelics seemed to be working to get that effect— it made me realize that I could actually study consciousness by studying the impact of psychedelic medicine and psychedelic therapy on treating mental illness. And I could actually do what I always wanted to do. And the way to do that was to become a psychiatrist. And so I then went down the psychiatry path and started to work on psychedelic research, but also trying to figure out how psychedelics work so we can replicate some of the benefits with technology and non-psychedelic tools like Apollo. That's incredible. You were ahead of the curve before you even knew it, right? Because nowadays, I mean, there's so much information on the mind-body connection. It is all related. And it's really encouraging to see people stepping back from the conventional approach to things like pills, for example, and treating, again, PTSD or depression, and really relying on more natural means like touch therapy and the Apollo wearable. Are you familiar with Dr. Roger McFillin and his work? No. You should check him out. He has a podcast called Radically Genuine. I had him on my show not too long ago, but just from your story, it sounds like you have similar interests. Yeah. But I would love to start with the basics, Dr. Dave. So what is the fundamental definition of stress? So stress is actually two things. Stress is really just challenge to the body and the body recognizes stress as inflammation. So that's like the chemical signaling pathways that get activated when our bodies are under stress. In our mind, it's just challenge. And challenge can be of two major categories, one of which is what we call U stress, which is EU stress, which means good stress. And good stress is stress that is in a safe environment where we know we're not under survival threat when we're experiencing that stress. And that stress challenges us to grow in productive ways without any kind of risk of damage or trauma or minimal risk at least. And that is critical for being a human. We have to have that kind of stress. That includes like things like learning to calm down when you're a little kid or learning to read 
or learning how to ride a bike or anything, right? Like all of those things like are very obvious challenges that we face growing up that allow us then develop new skills, like learning how to ride a bike or learning how to read, right? Or learning how to calm ourselves down. So all of that is the good stress. And then there's the other side of stress, which is what most of us are experiencing on a chronic daily basis is distress. And distress is bad stress. It's stress that makes us feel overwhelmed and anxious and having racing thoughts all the time, which increases our heart rate and increases our blood pressure and our breath rate and results in more inflammation in the body. And over time, that inflammation leads to buildup of waste product, which causes cell stress and damage and then eventually disease, right? So actually learning what modern neuroscience and psychology research shows about how we can learn how to cope with and adapt to stress more effectively, which we actually do know how to do. Like we have done enough scientific research to explain to people how to do this. And that a lot of the techniques of breath work and yoga and meditation, mindfulness, biofeedback, getting good night's sleep and sleep hygiene, right? All of these things are highly evidence-based and retrain the body into how to get into these maximally adaptable states where we can deal with the stress that's coming in rather than just, and and turn it into eustress, right? And so those techniques are really about how to understand, how to interpret stress so that even though it seems overwhelming, it's not actually going to kill me right now. It just seems like a lot. And then we can turn that into a growth opportunity. Exactly. I'm so glad you highlighted those those two differences because people, I feel like automatically when you say stress, it's, it has a negative connotation. But again, acute stress does help us perform better in certain scenarios, right? Like if you're running a race or you're taking a test, but it truly is that chronic stress that is the root of all disease. Because as you said, it it does flame the fire for inflammation in the body. So going back to measuring stress, is there any, I mean, obviously we've heard of HRV, but outside of that, what are some other ways to actually measure if our body is in a stressed state? Because certainly that could be subjective too, right? Someone says they're stressed, but how do you actually measure that? So HRV is probably the best measure that we have that's easy to capture that almost all consumer wearable fitness trackers track nowadays. So HRV is a measure of vagal tone or your body's amount of recovery and resilience. And it predicts a lot of things like having a higher HRV means that your chances of getting sick go down. Your chances of achieving peak performance during a stressful situation are higher. Consistency of performance is higher. You're more likely to recover from illness if you get sick. And recent studies have also shown it predicts long, healthy life health span. So HRV is probably the single best thing that we can track to understand the impact of stress on our bodies. And when our HRV is like, I'm talking like not day-to-day track, day-to-day tracking with wearable trackers is not as accurate as it could be yet for a lot of reasons, but you can track HRV week over week, month over month. And then over enough time of baseline data, you can start to understand more daily trends, but that's probably the when it's low, you know, that's a sign that we need to take it easy and get more recovery. So that's a really good one, if not the best one. And then there are other things that are like slightly more invasive or challenging to do, like galvanic skin response, electrodermal activity, which is the measure of the conductance of electricity, electrical microcurrents on the skin that you can measure 
through certain wearables, but they have a very short battery life, generally speaking. And it is basically when you get stressed out, you sweat a little bit, right? Even if you don't notice it, you're sweating like a teensy bit more. And so, interesting, yeah, so that's part of like the body's stress response. And so you can measure that change very quickly, but it's really hard to tell the difference between like stress and anger and frustration and excitement, right? They're, they, they look very similar. And even too, I mean, folks who use continuous glucose monitors, right? Yeah, like similar situation, you could be excited in talking to someone or giving a presentation and you'll see your, your blood sugar spikes, right? But that's not necessarily a bad spike. It's just the nature of the situation that you're in. So being able to identify the differences is really important. But when we do find ourselves in an acute stressful state, we just got some news that we didn't want to hear, you know, life happens. What are some of the best tools to help us calm down? Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick pause to share with you a bit more about today's episode sponsor. Have you ever thought to yourself, why is Manuka honey so special? Or even why is it so expensive? Well, for starters, based on a large number of studies, plus anecdotal evidence, Manuka honey benefits range from helping to heal sore throats and digestive illnesses to reducing acne and gingivitis. It's honestly a miracle worker. My favorite ways to incorporate Manuka honey into my daily routine include mixing it in my favorite tea, adding it to my morning smoothies, using it as a glaze over chicken or fish, or drizzling it in my granola or acai bowls. Like most things today though, not all honeys are created equal. To obtain the most benefits, you'll need to know the specific types of raw, unpasteurized honeys to look for, including real Manuka honey, which is why I love Wetterspoon. Wetterspoon's passion for holistic health is rooted in the rolling hills of New Zealand, where every flavorful drop of Wetterspoon Manuka honey is born. While Manuka honey can be a bit expensive, a little goes a long way. Plus, they're offering Well and Strong followers 15% off with the code Well and Strong at checkout. Now, back to my conversation. Uh, the tools are mostly like in a category of the, if you think about stress as or having a stressful event happen, be a situation, you know, a situation where we are like kind of feeling out of control in those moments because something just happened to us, right? Which is often how we feel, which kind of puts us into a victim mindset of being out of control. The best way, the best things that we can do for ourselves in those moments are to do everything we can to restore our sense of control and our awareness of what we have control over at any moment. So those things are breathing, movement, singing, and intentional listening, so like putting on a song that you like or or intentional touch, soothing touch, getting a hug from a loved one, holding somebody's hand, giving yourself a hug, putting your hands on your chest, right? So those are the four things that we can ha- that we as humans have control over in any moment that can rapidly take control over and re- by, give remind ourselves that we're in control by focusing our attention rather on the, rather than focusing our attention on the thing that we're out of control of, we bring our attention back to the things we are in control of. And so you can move, you can breathe and you can do, and you can touch, you can touch yourself and apply soothing touch to yourself. And you can just listen to what's going on around you in any moment or produce song in any moment. Right. So that those are these critical, you know, core techniques from ancient medicine that are still relevant today. 
Yeah. And they're so simple too, right? Like people don't, I think nowadays it's funny. It's truly the simple things that are the most effective. And I've, I particularly use the deep breathing for myself as well as like cognitive reframing to the point where I'll actually talk to myself aloud if my mind starts to race and actually, you know, bring myself back to the present moment and again, reframe the situation. But going back to the breathing, is there a certain breathing pattern, in your opinion, that's more helpful than others? I mean, there's so many out there. I was listening to a recent podcast with Huberman, and he basically was saying how the double inhale and long exhale is especially great because it's more effective at ridding your body of carbon dioxide, which relaxes the body very quickly. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think that while the theory of that may be true, the that breathing technique is at least from what i'm familiar with is more consistent with an activating breath work so we do that kind of breathing technique and holotropic breath work and other breath work that is like very activating to the body um it probably Wim Hof. yeah like it probably would calm some people down what we find and i think what the biofeedback literature shows is that the most calming basic breath work, which is really, really simple, which is nice that it's simple, is to breathe in for five seconds, breathe out for five seconds. And then just gradually just try to fill your lungs a little bit more every, you know, every minute or so. And then gradually like try to empty them out a little more with each breath. But really aiming for like five to seven seconds per breath to start. And what biofeedback shows is that if you do that for 90 seconds, 95% of healthy people will start to, will enter into a high heart rate variability, increased vagal tone state that results in decreased racing thoughts, decreased stress, decreased anxiety, improved mood in a lot of cases. And then when you, you know, it takes like five minutes for people who are more, who are like diagnosed with a mental illness usually to get to that state, but still it's five minutes right? It's so simple. But I think the challenge with a lot of these things is that when we're under stress, we forget to do them. Exactly. Right. And so that was a big, a big impetus for why we developed Apollo was because if you could have something on you, you can just tap two buttons and turn it on when you're in a stressful situation, or you can schedule it, turn on it anticipates your stressful situation, then, you know, you're going to be in a state of more calm and ease and and evenness and it reminds you to do the techniques you know it reminds you to come back into your body um that's yeah. that's like it's nice to have another tool you know in addition to these old things that that work but we just don't tend to do exactly and i am just curious dr dave have you seen in research the use of breath work being effective in terms of like a preventative measure so you just said before like we tend to forget the simple things when we're in a panic moment so have you found that people who actively practice some type of breathwork routine on a daily basis may have more, I guess, resilience when faced with those stressful situations? Yeah, I mean, I think the best evidence comes from like the 70 years of biofeedback research. And biofeedback is the real first, from what I know, like quantified science of breathing where you connect somebody to a heart rate monitor and a respiratory monitor, and then you show them their respiratory and heart rate patterns on a screen. And they're told to, to basically like sync the patterns. And that syncing happens between five and seven breaths per minute. And that's when 
vagal tone starts to go up and heart rate variability starts to go up and people start to feel like more quiet mind, more calm, more settled, and the body calms down. And so from those studies, which are extensive, I think it's pretty undeniable that breath practice will improve your overall resilience, you know, because it's improving heart rate variability. So heart rate variability is the best measure of resilience in your ability to adapt to stress. So, you know, yeah, I, absolutely. Breath is preventative and it can be used to treat and address stress in the moment. It's like probably our single most powerful tool that we never learned to use. I'm going to self-experiment in the sense of being more consistent with using my Apollo every day and really creating a, a breathwork routine that I can stick to, again, even if it is only five minutes or so. Because interestingly, I found out not too long ago, and I'm not really surprised to hear it, that I have a dysregulated nervous system. And we obviously know that chronic stress can impact our nervous system. So I'd like to start first by asking you, what are some of the common causes of a dysregulated nervous system? Well, chronic stress is probably the, the number one cause. And to your, but, and just to answer or to comment on something you said earlier about doing more breath work and doing more Apollo or using more of your Apollo on more of a schedule, one of the nice things is you can do them together because Apollo works by delivering the vibrations, the sound wave vibrations to your body at that five to seven breaths per minute rate. And that's how it works. So if you just breathe with your Apollo, vibrations when you're using it, you know, it will train you even faster how to breathe at that natural rate or that resting rate. So that's part of how it works. But yeah, I think that the things that, that cause the most disrupted nervous system or dysregulated nervous system, which, you know, is actually really common. I think probably most humans in the Western world right now have a dysregulated nervous system because if we're not sleeping and, and not getting good, deep, restful sleep is a major contributor to chronic stress because that's when we get like 80 to 90% of our recovery. So we're, you know, in deep sleep, you're getting your physical recovery for the most part. In your REM sleep, you're getting your mental, emotional recovery and, and memory reconsolidation. So if you don't have those happening as much as they should, because you're not getting that good, deep, restful sleep, then you're going to be more tired and more stressed out during the day. And that's, and you're not going to deal with stress as well. And your HRV is going to be lower. So I think those are the most common causes of nervous system dysregulation. Yeah, it's funny. I just got an aura ring and your comment before about how like how technology today isn't necessarily super accurate in terms of tracking that on a daily basis, but we can get insights from more of like the weekly patterns. Yesterday for the first time I looked and it was like, your body has been in a stressed state for 80% of the day. And I was just working, like I wasn't doing anything necessarily out of the ordinary. So I just thought that was interesting. And I think it still has to get used to my body. I literally got it a week ago, but it's definitely interesting to to see some of those insights. Yeah. Do you find them helpful? I do. I mean, I think sometimes too much information isn't too great. If you have a bad night of sleep and you see it in the morning on your aura ring and right away, it like puts you in that mentality of, oh no, it's going to be a horrible day. I'm not going to be able to focus. But I think, you know, knowledge is power. Again, it depends how you use it. But something interesting too, you touched on before, Dr. Dave. So like the vagal toning practices, obviously there's so much literature on the vagus nerve, right? And vagus nerve stimulation for improving a dysregulated nervous system. One of my questions to you is what are your thoughts on hormetic stressors 
particularly for someone who already has a dysregulated nervous system. So things like cold water immersion that obviously shock your body, right? You would think that that's not great for a dysregulated nervous system, but there's a lot of research that actually has shown that it interestingly is. So what are your thoughts on that? It depends on the situation, right? So if you're, I think in general, the way to look at hormetic stressors, which is a great word, is to think about what we were talking about earlier about creating situations of eustress so that we can improve our ability to grow and become more adaptive, resilient human beings. So if you know that you're safe and you go into a cold plunge sauna situation, then and you, you, you do it safely or with some guidance or whatever, then you can train that trains your body to be able to be more tolerant of not just hot and cold stress, but stress in general just by doing that. However, the caveat is that there are certain certain there you know it's different for men and women about what times of the month are good to hot cold plunge. So for instance for women, you know this isn't taught or explained very well, but you know it seems like during the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle is not a good time to cold plunge because yeah. um, it can you know for whatever reason it can impair your immune system and people get sick more often and it's not not good to do not to put your body under that kind of stress during that time um right similarly if you're like about to get a cold or you're feeling under the weather or you're you know feeling physically dysregulated and uncomfortable um because you might be getting sick or something like that that's also probably not a good time to do hot and cold so there's you know but from you know a mental emotional stress I think sauna cold plunge can actually be really helpful because it's just like exercise is helpful, right? So it's, you're putting your body when you're exercising and you're doing something that's elevating your heart rate to a high level because you're really exerting yourself. Even if it's just for five or 10 minutes every couple of days, you're training your body to not only let out physical tension through movement, but you're also training your body to learn how to tolerate discomfort and stress more effectively. And so then over time, that has an effect that's more powerful than antidepressants. Yeah. It's crazy to say, but I think I've become addicted to cold showers. I find that's better than my morning cup of coffee, quite honestly. But speaking of coffee, what's the relationship between caffeine and HRV? I think the studies are still out on that. I don't think we necessarily know that there is a significant impact on HRV from drinking coffee. I think every everything can be done in excess. If you don't drink too much, it probably would have a negative effect because if you drink too much coffee or caffeine in general, or any stimulant for that matter, including amphetamines like Adderall or Ritalin or anything like that, or cocaine, you will mess up your sleep. And if you mess up your sleep, your HRV goes down. Sleep is the number one reason why our HRV recovers. So if we're not getting good deep restful sleep, like I said earlier, you're not going to have improvements to your recovery that are reflected in your measurements of your HRV. So I think that's indirectly, if you're messing up your sleep, you will have HRV drops and you will be left recover yeah. during the day. That makes sense. And I guess that's more also like of an individual approach in terms of figuring out like how one person metabolizes caffeine over another, right? We're all different. And I am curious too, Dr. Dave, what are your thoughts on nootropics? So nootropic is like is a general term that refers to, for the most part, a supplement, nutritional supplement that improves 
cognition, memory, like things about how our brains work and function. And you could even put improving energy as part of that, right? There's nootropics include a lot of different kinds of supplements. It's not like, it's hard. You can't really say like the whole category that they're good or bad. There's lots of good ones. And there's lots of ones where you're not sure what's in them or what the quality of the ingredients is. And I think a lot of people, there's a big desire in a culture that prioritizes and rewards productivity so much to take things or do whatever you need to do to get an edge to be more productive, right? That's just what we incentivize in our society. So I think that has a big impact on the way that nootropics have been embraced in the market because everybody's trying to get an edge and ideally without a prescription. But I think you have to be a little bit careful because there's a lot of there's a lot of ingredients in these things that have not been tested in any way. They're not regulated by the FDA and we don't know what the side effects are. Some, a lot of them have stuff in them that is not intentionally made to cause you anxiety. But if you have anxiety at all a little bit and then you take something that is more activating to you in a, in a way that's stronger than you thought, like that can inc- introduce a lot more anxiety for people. That's so interesting. I had that experience because I won't divulge the company name, but I did try them for the first time, I don't know, a month or so ago before a podcast episode thinking this will give me that focus boost that I need while like blunting the effects of caffeine, like the jitters and whatnot that we all don't really want after drinking too much coffee. But Dr. Dave, I felt horrible. I don't even know how to describe it, but I just felt like I was on something for like a solid two days and I couldn't focus my vision was blurry. I just, I felt like it was like an out-of-body experience. So that's why I, I just wanted uh, your thoughts on that because I did not have a good reaction. Yeah, there's lots of good, there's lots of good stuff out there. I would check out Sean Wells okay. and the supplements that he has collaborated on because he is a expert formulator and really knows his stuff around nootropics and supplement formulation. So he works, he's worked on a lot of stuff out there. And I think, we don't think about cannabinoids this way, but cannabinoids are, they're legal, like CBD, CBDA, especially like full spectrum stuff where you have like other cannabinoids yeah. and terpenes in there. Those can also be nootropic. Adaptogenic mushrooms, there's a lot of mushroom supplements that can be nootropic that improve memory, cognition, emotion regulation, adaptability, right? These are all part of the same story. Yeah, interesting. I am a fan of like L-theanine, ashwagandha, GABA, like I take those occasionally. But yeah, the whole combination of 20 plus substances scares me a bit, but I will look into look into him. But going back to our nervous system. So another area that I've always been interested in is neuroplasticity, right? Like the brain's ability to continually change and improve and, and make new neural connections. And as I was thinking of that, I started thinking about the nervous system. And I guess my question to you is, how much control do we really have over our nervous systems? And I've read so many studies on the infant-mother connection and how the mindset and stressors of a pregnant woman will have a significant impact on the developing nervous system of the child. So when it comes to a dysregulated nervous system, is it really possible to completely bring that back into balance if there were so many things outside of our control before we were even born? Does that make sense? Yeah, everything is retrainable. The brain is infinitely neuroplastic. And neuroplasticity, it just means learning potential. Neuroplasticity and learning are really like the same thing. Neuroplasticity is like what happens on a cellular level, but 
learning is what happens on a neurocognitive level. So that is always happening. And it's happening at different rates at different times in our lives. Like when we're newborns and we're young, it happens faster in different ways. But when we, but it continues throughout our entire lives. Um, my my mid-70s father just taught himself how to play jazz piano. And wow, like any. That's impressive. It's really impressive. And any so anything's possible. You know, you just have to put your mind to it. And, you know, I think that we can retrain, like the data is showing that we can retrain old thought loops just by self-inquiry, non-judgmental self-inquiry, right? Which is like what therapy teaches us how to do. And by learning how to do somatic techniques that calm the body that make non-judgmental self-inquiry easier and less uncomfortable and resilience techniques that make it less uncomfortable, right? Because the whole goal is to look inside ourselves, like the whole mental health, emotional health healing process that is the journey of life that we're all on, right? We all have our own somewhere in that journey that we are. And it's a very personal journey. And it really, what we teach people how to do in therapy is really how to non-critically, non-judgmentally look inside themselves and create time and space to do that where they can actually connect with the vulnerable parts of themselves and show those parts a little love and remind those parts that they're accepted and that they're part of the me experience in this life, even though they might have been led to feel badly about themselves or I might have been led to feel badly about them at some point in my life right? Because somebody yeah. bullied me or treated me badly or whatever, told me not to sing because my voice sucked or whatever, right? And then all of a sudden, you decide, well, there's something wrong with my voice, right? It means there might be something wrong with me. And then it starts these yeah. thought loops. That's so interesting too. And can you also, I guess, bust the myth of, how do I say this? So my mom, for example, she's she's a worrier, right? And I'm always like, mom, you need to change the way you view worry and anxiety and her excuses. Like my my family consists of worriers, right? It's genetic. Is there a genetic component to that, to our disposition for anxiety and worry? Um, it's mostly not genetic. Most of what we experience, that what genetics are is what's in our DNA. And that's what's in every cell of our entire body. Our DNA is basically... In the same. What's genetic is what comes from our mother and father. That's the predisposition to certain things, meaning the likelihood of certain things happening to us in terms of the way that we respond, our bodies and our minds respond and react to stress. What it's been found is that when you look across like mental health conditions, for instance, genetics play a very small role. Most people you know, having a family history of depression is more likely that you had the environmental impact being raised by somebody with depression that increased your likelihood of depression more so than something being wrong with your DNA and you were just born with depression. Did you have and possibly have an increased likelihood of responding to stress with depressed symptoms because of the history of what was passed down on our DNA and our epigenetic code, which is on top of the DNA, sure, that's absolutely yeah. possible. And that does play a role. But the environment seems to play a much bigger role, which is good news because that means that we can modify the outcome. 
Yeah, it's very empowering. Epigenetics, we could have a whole episode just dedicated to that topic because it's incredibly fascinating. And as I, I had mentioned earlier, I had Dr. McFillin on the show no, not too long ago. And one thing we touched on too that I was news to me is that depression is not actually like really related to serotonin. And all these SSRIs that are sadly prescribed, they do more damage than good. So much to the point where like he actually refers to modern psychiatry as essentially drug dealing. So I am curious, how do you approach the use of medications versus like more therapeutic interventions, which it seems that you're a big fan of in treating patients with stress and anxiety? Yeah, I mean, we approach it the way that we were all taught to approach it as doctors, which is, you know, focus on using the least risky intervention first and then work your way up as needed. Right. So, you know, I think it's important to note that anti, like modern antidepressants like SSRIs are not all bad. They actually have a lot of uses and their primary use is stabilization. So when we're working with patients who are extremely depressed or anxious and really struggling, SSRIs help to actually reduce what we might call like the window of emotion. So if you think about normally, you can feel from extreme joy all the way up here to like extreme despair all the way down here. SSRIs do this or this so that your extremes, you can't feel as much of the extremes, but your you can't feel as much of the negative, but the downside is you also don't feel as much of the positive, which is what causes the side effects that a lot of people report, right? And so, so the main goal of SSRIs is to stabilize people enough to be able to get them into the psychotherapeutic process so that they can actually start to work on some of the stuff that's causing their depression or their anxiety. Does that make sense? Yeah. What does that look like from a timing perspective? Like how long? I mean, it's it's more about... So I don't... You know, we don't typically start with SSRIs as the first option anymore in most many of the integrated psychiatry practices. So we'll, we do like a psychotherapy dominant practice. We, op we optimize your lifestyle, your nutrition, your supplementation protocols. We optimize your medications in terms of other medications you're taking. Um, and then we focus a lot on psychotherapy techniques that combine some supplements and plant medicine with technology that can make a dent that's as big or bigger in most cases than traditional antidepressant therapy. And then if that for some reason doesn't work and we have to move towards prescription therapy, which would, could include ketamine-assisted therapy, we'll usually do that and focus on the things that have the, the medications that have the least side effects for that person and just gradually, again, work our way up. And by the time we get to ketamine therapy, before we've gotten to SSRIs, people typically respond, have responded significantly and they're feeling a lot better. And that has way fewer side effects than many other prescription antidepressant or anti-anxiety medications. But I think it's important to note that it's not about like duration of time. There's no like fixed duration of time that anybody's on an SSRI medication like Zoloft or Prozac. It's more about what is the impact of their lives when they're taking it compared to when they're not taking it. You know, there are a lot of people out there who have such a tremendous benefit from taking their SSRI that they can actually work and and play and function and do all the things they need to do to be a, a, a happy human being that as soon as you take that away for, for a number of different reasons, including that they haven't mastered, they don't have other tools that are different or to take the place of the SSRI. And they also haven't probably yet mastered the therapy techniques that therapy is trying to teach them to 
self-regulate and 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 really optimize resilience to stress that so we want them to base, basically learn that stuff and so once you know however long they need to take the medication basically in short however long they need to take the medication to learn the techniques on their own about how to manage their own stress without the drug that's how long they take it and that's typically yeah. how we do it or and hopefully you know they don't have side effects during the time they're taking it. A lot of people don't, as long as you get the dosing right, but it's just very personalized. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick pause brought to you by one of today's show sponsors. Blood sugar is one aspect of our biology that has major implications for how well we feel and function. In fact, did you know that sustained periods of elevated glucose can actually lead to insulin resistance? That's why I'm a big fan of Vary. Vary is a great tool to find personalized insights on what works best for your body, because everyone is different. By pairing a continuous glucose monitor with an easy-to-use app, in just 14 days, you can understand how to break unhelpful habits and build new ones to improve your metabolic health through nutrition, exercise, sleep, and stress management. Since using Vary, I've learned so much about how different factors impact my body and my ability to keep my blood sugar stable. For example, I learned that my morning coffee on an empty stomach can actually spike my blood sugar levels and that the order in which I eat my foods during a meal can curb my blood sugar response without actually changing the foods I'm eating. So if you want to improve your metabolic health by finding the optimal foods and habits for maintaining balanced blood sugar, give Vary a shot with my exclusive $30 off code VSM-WellAndStrong and check out the link in the podcast notes to purchase directly from their website. Yeah, it's so interesting and not to go down a rabbit hole, but would you say that placebo response plays a pretty big part in that, right? And again, one study that I came across is a study by Joanna Moncrief, which was basically this umbrella study that showed there was no convincing evidence that depression was associated with serotonin. So knowing that, looking at all these patients on SSRIs, how how can you deduce that like they've improved aside from just the placebo effect? So, so that study was a very important study that is probably one of the largest, most conclusive studies that we have showing that depression is not a, is not mean that you have, there's not enough evidence to support the theory that depression means you have a a serotonin imbalance in your brain. It doesn't mean that serotonin is not important and involved in depression because it is. It's very important and most other mental illnesses and brain functioning. So it's like a really, really important molecule. So it, it is involved, but we, it's not the reason why we get depressed is not because we have a genetic serotonin imbalance in our brain. We weren't mm-hmm. born with it. And that means that we can, again, that's like good news, right? That means that what we do matters, right? The, the activities we do, the way we change our behavior, the way we think about ourselves, all of that actually has just as much of an impact on the serotonin functioning of our brains as taking a medication. So like a lot of the studies have shown that exercise, I think this study showed also Mm -hmm. that exercise was one of the most likely things to make depression better reliably. And that depression is actually most commonly associated with trauma. So that is much more consistent with what we see in the clinic and when we're working with our patients about what is causing depression than the idea of the serotonin imbalance hypothesis, which many of us haven't actually believed for a very long time, but that's what was taught. 
So yeah, so that's good news. That means we actually have a say in the outcome. Interesting. Yeah, that's, yeah. Again, that could be a whole other topic area for another episode. But one thing too you touched on, Dr. Dave, is nutrition and the treatment of depression in your patients. Can you maybe just highlight at a very high level an optimal diet for someone who suffers from severe anxiety and depression? What might that look like? So, you know, it actually starts more simply than you might think, but it really just starts with, if we look at modern neuroscience theory, right? And depression and anxiety, which are often mostly, most often rooted in past traumatic events, trauma being a, like a learned fear response in the body, right? That creates inflammation. Mm -hmm. And then that inflammation sticks around. And so we want to help solve the problem we want to remove things from the diet to start that cause inflammation. So for a lot of people, it's dairy, number one, especially cow dairy, which is more inflammatory than any other dairy. And then removing simple sugars and especially like processed food, fake sugars and things that are like high fructose corn syrup, right? Just getting all of that stuff out of the diet, which is actually easier than most people realize. It really is. What about gluten? Gluten is actually okay for most people. We don't usually remove that on round one. If we, you know, you do multiple rounds of this. So, you know, the first round is remove all the stuff that impacts everybody and include, which means also replacing food you're eating that has pesticides and herbicides and fungicides on it because it's not organic with organic food, right? And that's also a big part of this initial like first round nutrition process optimization. And then if, they're still having a lot of inflammation afterwards. We often will remove gluten as well, or at least most gluten. And there's other things that we can do to, for diet also, which includes like just making sure you have a balanced diet, right? If you have a balanced diet, you don't actually need to take that many supplements because you're getting most of your nutrients from your diet. So supplementation becomes something that isn't as required with like vitamins and minerals and things like that. It's when people don't have a balanced diet or they're eating a lot of processed food that doesn't have a lot of like high nourishment content that or nutrient content that then that, you know, those people are much more in need of supplementation. And so right. that well-balanced diet optimization is a big part of it. And then we also make sure that we figure out, okay, this person might be needing a little extra iron. They're not getting that. They might need a little extra vitamin D. They're not getting enough sun. They might need some calcium and some magnesium because of the age that they're in. And, you know, they might, you know, they might have an increased risk of osteoporosis. And of course that has impact on the body and mental health and things like that through calcium, too much calcium, yada, yada, yada. Right. So that's kind of how we, yeah. how we start and continue to work with the nutritional evaluation. I love that. And I think the beauty with that approach is that it also supports balanced blood sugar levels throughout the day, right? And as you're very aware, there's so much literature on blood sugar spikes with hormone imbalance, depression, ADHD, all of those. So that's very, very important. Can I mention something about that real quick? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's important to note that your blood sugar spiking is not always a bad thing. We're supposed to have some spikes throughout the day, right? So if you think about all of this, it's like the key word is moderation. The key word is right. balance. So we're going to have spikes. Like you said earlier, it's, if you're just looking at blood sugar you, and blood sugar spikes, you can't tell the difference between stress 
and excitement, right? Just like when you're looking at sweat on your skin. So the body is supposed to have certain times during the day where we have spikes and certain times where we go lower, like when we're in deep and REM sleep. And that's when our gluconeogenesis system turns on, where our liver starts actually pumping like glucose back out into the blood. And we have a certain rhythm of blood glucose, which is impacted by meals. So it's not always bad to have your blood glucose spike, but we want to keep your blood glucose in a balanced range over time. So you're not having too many of those spikes or too many high periods where it goes high and stays high because that are unnecessary or induced by diet because that or behavior that is like too much, way too much stress, then that is a sign that maybe there's some more optimization stuff that we could do to help. Exactly. Yeah. I'm so glad you touched on that too, because I feel like I experienced this firsthand when I got a CGM I would be anal at looking at spikes. And if I had like a cup of blueberries, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can never eat blueberries anymore because my blood sugar spiked. When in reality, that's the farthest thing from the truth. But I kind of went more based on symptoms, right? So if I had a whole bag of like plantain chips in the afternoon and then an hour later, I needed to take a nap. I recognize that that may have been an unhealthy spike, right? So it's all about the context. Exactly. Um, very, very important. Yeah. Dr. Dave, I do want to be conscious of your time. This has been such a wonderful conversation where can listeners find you? Uh, thank you so much for having me, first off. And uh, you can find me on socials at Instagram and Twitter at Dr. David Rabin. And you can find me on my website at drdave.io. And if you want to hear more about my work in the psychedelic space, you can check out the Psychedelic Report, which is your biweekly psychedelic news on Spotify and Apple Podcast. And for more on consciousness and how your brain works, check out Your Brain Explained. Wonderful. I could just spend days going through all of your research and still not even skim the surface, but I'd love to have you back on to discuss one of those topics. Thank you so much again for all of the wonderful work that you're doing in this space. And my last question for you is, what does being well and strong mean to you? I think being well and strong means being graceful. You know, it's just like being able to just flow with life and not put up too much resistance or just acknowledge when we're like resisting what's happening and we're putting up, you know, putting, putting up barriers, um, and just, you know, being just at ease and in, in the flow of life. Right. I think this is like what Bruce Lee taught, which is like, be like, yeah. Right. Like it's about just going with it gracefully, not fighting all the time. The fighting is actually what causes the pushing back on is actually what causes a lot of stress for us. And that's something that we have control over. And so doing these techniques, including using Apollo, just helps remind us that we have control over that and that we are doing that, even though we might not realize it. I love that. Yeah, I came across a quote the other day. I can't remember who said it, but exactly essentially what you said, resistance to what is is what creates the stress and the depression in our lives. So I can agree more. Well, Dr. Dave, this has been so fun. Thank you again for your time. And I'm super excited to share this with listeners. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to support the show, please subscribe, leave a rating and review, and share it with others. Be sure to visit wellandstrong.com to access notes from the show and to stay current with new content. I'm so grateful you joined me. Be well and be strong.